Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. This episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a part of the desert community for over 70 years. This is Marty Lockman, and today's guest is Carl Cardinelli, Vice President of Development and President of Bighorn Golf Club a title that does not fully cover the myriad of duties and responsibilities that Carl contributes to Bighorn. Working for the most part behind the scenes, Carl has been a part of Bighorn since its inception and an integral part of our growth and success. It is important for all of us to hear the stories of those who work tirelessly and without recognition to ensure that we have the culture and positive experience we all want. There are many of these people, but Carl is a major part of the leadership team that continues to make Bighorn what it is and what it will be in the future. Welcome, Carl. And as we have done in all of our podcasts, let's start at the beginning in Northern California. Thank you, Marty. Well, I was born in the Carmel Hospital in Carmel, California, and grew up in Monterey. Come from a blue-collar background. My father was a carpenter, but an excellent one. And uh, my mother was a, really a bright, um, first-generation Italian-American woman. My father was a first-generation Italian-American man. And uh, my childhood was really terrific. I had a great time. Monterey is a small town, but in a very beautiful area. And uh, had a lot of friends. We lived on a street that was three blocks behind the high school. And it's, as you know, anyone who's been there, it's a beautiful bay, hilly, lots of pine trees, um, beaches, water, ocean. Being Italian, I was uh, connected to a lot of cousins and family all over Monterey. So some of our get-togethers would be at uh, like Carpenter's Union Hall for Christmas and things of that nature. So we always had a lot of people around. There's always a lot of talk and food and discussion. Um, but it was stimulating and it was a wonderful environment to be in. And, very nurturing. My father, <clears throat> he's a wonderful man. In fact, uh, so many people referred to him as being a prince. He was born Carmelo Cardinale, and he was the youngest boy of six in a family of 12. So six girls, six boys. Um, they really lived in poverty. They were kicked out of a number of homes. He remembers sleeping in a bed with uh, four of his brothers, and it was like head to toe. And So um, everybody contributed to the family, and he uh, would sell papers on downtown Alvarado Street in Monterey, and he would have a piece of bread in his pocket and sell papers and eat a little bread and that was his nourishment and then whatever he earned, bring it home. So everybody in the family worked that way and they were a 
very wonderful group of aunts and uncles for me and then cousins. And um, he lied about his age to get into the carpenter's union. So he was probably 15 and a half or maybe 15, but he got in and started working as a carpenter. He was ambidextrous. So he could saw a hammer, screw, bolts, etc., with both hands. And uh, just fantastic at it. And as he, um, he went into the service uh, in 1943, and he flew in B-24s as a tail gunner and radio man. Um, I don't remember how many sorties he flew, but the maximum until you were cycled out. And um, even got shot down over Yugoslavia, bailed out, was smuggled through Yugoslavia back to Italy, where he was based uh, by the underground. Um, just really a wonderful guy. Came back to Monterey after the service, and that's when he met my mom. And then he went back to being a carpenter, but really a master carpenter, and he was a superintendent on many, many jobs in Pebble Beach and Monterey and Carmel and Carmel Valley. Uh, some of the notable homes that he worked on. He worked on a home for the founder of what was, I think, called American Paints that later became American Marietta and now, and then Martin Marietta. Now I think it's some other name. But this was an extraordinary house on 14 acres that was right above uh, the Pebble Beach Lodge, but uh, a couple of miles uphill. And it was a California ranch style, and it was designed by an architect that loved my dad. His name was Girolamo. Uh, uh, sorry, his name was Jerry Milano. And he was a brilliant guy. And because my father was so good and could execute his designs, they worked together on a few homes. So this home was so advanced for its time, they moved 100 oak trees onto the property. They had uh, cork flooring in the kitchen area. Um, they had radiant heat. There was a great room that projected out from this ranch-style house that sprawled on the view, over, looking out over the ocean. And uh, it was a huge room, probably 30 by 35 by 30. And um, the windows were maybe 15 to 18 feet high. And all of this was custom at the time, as you can imagine. Um, and the way they provided privacy was by using soji screens. And they had them handmade and imported from Japan. Um, so the it, this was for Grover Herman, and the Hermans really loved my dad, so he continued to help them if anything came up with the house or deal with the house or do remodeling, et cetera. I remember um, going into the, the, you know, sort of like maid's quarters, which was actually a house, and this was one of the most beautiful houses I had ever been in because of our house. Um, so it was very interesting. And through the years, I would go out there and I'd work and clean up landscaping or help with something that was being remodeled or do laboring jobs. But 
I really got a chance to see what real quality could be. And I didn't know it at the time. I mean, I wasn't taking any notes, but um, it really was a big influence in my life. They had wonderful art pieces and, and Benny Buffano and Marty, you know Benny Buffano right. from San Francisco. Absolutely. Uh, but he had a Benny Buffano sculpture garden. It was priceless. So in addition to the Herman house, my father built a home for T. Jack Foster. And T. Jack Foster's home was quite modern, and it did sit up maybe two or three blocks right above the lodge. And uh, T. Jack Foster was, at one time, the youngest mayor elected in the United States. And I think this was in Oklahoma or Kansas, one of those states. And he created Foster City in San Francisco, but he had a personality that was kind of bigger than life. But again, this, the home, the concrete forms, the round forms and projecting forms and the really it, um, cutting edge modernism of the home, again, done by the same architect was fascinating. So uh, I was exposed to that. My father did a major remodel for the Firestone family that was really close to the lodge and a few other homes that were spectacular. But, you know, as a, as a kid and then uh, when you're in your teenage years and uh, I worked as a hod carrier and a laborer, I got to be involved in the environment and with the people who actually are hands-on and get their hands dirty and sit around a sit around on the job site with lunch pails open and just talking about life and the job and their experiences it was uh it was really really fantastic i probably didn't think that way when i was working it was hot and i was digging a ditch or whatever it might have been but looking back on it it was very valuable my mother she was born in New York, was very smart. Her family moved from New York City to West Oakland. And um, my grandfather was a peddler and quite a character on his own. But she just read everything. In fact, when she was probably 13 or 14, uh, she was working at the West Oakland Public Library and over the course of two or three years, she read probably just about every book they had in the library. And uh, all during my life, or her life, she would read 14 books a week. And the local library would just have books ready for her or say, Jen, I think you're gonna enjoy these books. And one of her favorite were travel books. But she just would turn pages. And then you could ask her anything about the book, or she would tell you anything about the book. So she was a speed reader before that even became a method. Um, but she helped, you know, all the cousins in the family who were having a difficult time going through school. And she, whatever the subject was, they'd come over for help from Auntie Jen. And uh, she was just great. She was a real firecracker. So I had two really terrific parents. And uh, so I had a very good childhood. Now you're going to be moving on into your school years, and how does that all transpire? Yeah, school was 
always important in my family. And my mother went to Cal Berkeley, and she actually was admitted, I think, when she was 16 or 17 and graduated on time and then uh, worked on a project for the government. It was called the Manhattan Project, and she didn't know what the objective was, but she was doing analysis and research at the Hoover Institute. Uh, so my upbringing was always that I was going to go to school, and I always thought I was going to go to Cal Berkeley. So um, from the beginning, there was always an emphasis on it, and, and I love sports. I just couldn't get enough of it. I, I love baseball. I could play it every single day. And, uh, of course, you know, it's all sports then come into play, and so you're playing baseball and football and basketball and you're wrestling and you're trying to do track and it's just everything all the time. And I was fortunate to be pretty good and I had good genes and good hand-eye coordination and I was faster than anybody at school and all of that stuff. But when that happens, you know, other kids look up to you and then you assume that role. You know, it's, you, I didn't have any thoughts that, okay, I'm going to lead you guys. It wasn't, it was just organic. So I did well in school and uh, the kids in school looked to me for ideas. And so I was uh, from fifth grade on president of every class and then the last year of elementary school and middle school or junior high school and and high school I was president of the school so it was just a sort of a natural progression and then when it came time to looking at colleges of course I'm still thinking about Berkeley and my football coaches who were also my baseball coaches came to me and said hey we can get you into Stanford and I said I don't want to go to Stanford I want to go to Cal Berkeley and they said wait a minute do you know what Stanford is? I said, well, it's a university. <laughs> so they kind of laughed, and I went home, and my mother was the first one to say, you have a chance to go to Stanford? <laughs> go. So, um, so the die was cast, and I went from the East Bay to the West Bay, and my mother and I had wonderful Cal Stanford Berkeley contests going on every year. But... That was, uh, that was very influential, and Stanford was a remarkable experience. I, I just can't tell you the things that I was exposed to. Here's a kid from Monterey, which is you know, a small town, and, and in so many ways cloistered. And, um, and then to get to Stanford and to be exposed to so many more ideas, so many more personalities, so many people who were... Uh, extraordinary in what they could do and backgrounds that they came from. Um, and then the school itself wasn't just the education, which um, I certainly could have been better at, but, um, you know, I had, uh, I had, I could go to lectures and have classes and attend symphonies and performances that I never would have been exposed to. Um, I took a class from, as an example, I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but I took a class from Marcel Marceau. Um, and 
Art Hoppy, remember him? Right. So columnist, yeah. Spent an evening with Art Hoppy and just telling stories about San Francisco and his experiences and very funny. And, uh, you know, the quality of instruction, I, I didn't know what the heck I wanted to be because I thought I was going to be a baseball player and that was it. And that didn't turn out. But I uh, decided to um, be an English major. And, and that wasn't my strong suit. I mean, I, it was probably one of my weaker suits at the time. And, um, but I thought, okay, I know I'm going to go to graduate school somewhere in something. But I've got four years in this institution. I want to broaden my horizons. I want to do something that I probably am not going to do in my life. So, you know, I'm taking Shakespeare and uh, all these terrific authors and poets and all this stuff, which is kind of unusual and really probably didn't fit a profile of mine, but that's what I did. And I had one professor I had almost a year with him, and he was a Shakespeare professor. He gave these incredible lectures and uh, made Shakespeare vibrant and real and relevant. And uh, I remember probably within a month or so, I went up to the podium because I had a question to ask him. And he always had a raised podium and we always thought he was reading from notes because there was never a pause or or anything like that. And it was beautifully done at the time. Well, I look at the podium and he has a piece of white paper with about five words on it and that was it but um, and and that level of instruction was um, very prevalent so then there's the whole social aspect you know the girlfriends the first jet flight the first uh, that's when I started to learn learn to play tennis got exposed to the arts through a girlfriend and ended up being an usher at the San Francisco Opera House. So I got to see some incredible acts and heard some wonderful music. Uh, And that was so influential that when Diane and I got married, we got the cheapest season tickets we could to uh, San Francisco Symphony. And it was like four performances, I think. And we'd drive up and drop the girls off with Diane's parents in Hayward. And then we'd go over the bay. And we couldn't afford much, but we would go and to this bar. And we'd split a crab cocktail and have a drink and we'd go to the symphony and then drive back to Diane's parents' house. But wonderful, wonderful time. But it enriches your life. And it allows you to expand your horizons and see things in different ways. And... The more, the more you can do that, the more you can recognize possibilities. What a great lesson to young people today, to step out of your comfort zone. It's not always easy to do at that point in your life. Yeah, so, so true. Um, you know, I continued with sports. Uh, it was mostly intramurals. I mean, I was on the Frosch baseball team, and my ego got in the way, and that's a whole nother story. So I didn't continue, but uh, played in all the intramural sports. And we took a couple of championships, so that was always fun. And, and you know, that was the time of a lot of protest. I mean, even from Monterey, 
the civil rights movement was very important to me. And the Vietnam War, you know, I was over at the Oakland Draft Center. I was part of the sit-ins and protests and my hair was long and I smoked dope and, but it was genuine, it was sincere. And in the music, watching The Grateful Dead, being at Golden Gate Park, um, the concerts, I was an usher in, I, I had um, been an usher at the Monterey Jazz Festival. So Monterey Pop comes along in 1967 and I just had finished my freshman year at Stanford and I was an usher in the performers section. And I can't tell you how great that experience is. Uh, you know, standing next to Janis Joplin when Otis Redding is on stage at 11 o'clock at night and the whole place is going wild, including Janis. It was fantastic. And then we go to the college football field afterwards, which was about oh, a mile away or so. And we're all hanging out and talking and there's a huge buzz going on. It's like 1230 and... Eric Burden and some of his guys come out to the field and start an impromptu concert for us. I graduate from Stanford and um, I really didn't know what to do. I took a sort of a half year of graduate student at large at Stanford and I thought I'd go to law school. So that was my next decision and uh, applied. Um, couldn't get into Stanford, and rightfully so, but I was very fortunate. I uh, was accepted to a few few law schools, East Coast, Midwest, and, and then there was Santa Clara. Santa Clara had been one of the schools that I had applied to when I was doing my first round for undergraduate schools, and um, gosh, they, I wrote him back, thanked them for the acceptance, and told them I was going to be going to Stanford. And they wrote me a beautiful letter and said, um, you know, we think it's a wonderful thing and go on in your life. We want you to be successful. And if there's anything that Santa Clara can do, please call on us. And I thought, wow, I, <laughs> that was pretty unusual. So I ended up going to Santa Clara Law School. Uh, don't regret it for a second, obviously. And law school is really interesting. You know, you think you're smart, you think you know how to think and look at the world and, and get by in the world. But law school, certainly for me, tore down my approach to thinking about things and analyzing things and restructured how I would analyze things and restructured how to ask questions and what questions might be important and how to focus on a subject. I mean, it was really powerful. I remember coming home at Christmas, which isn't a long drive, obviously, but I had a lot of laundry to do. And it was almost like everything that anyone would say, I'd be critical of it, or I would you know, pick it apart or think, well, you should say that in a different way, or what do you mean by that? And this is Christmas, it's the holidays. It really was uh, quite a situation. And while I was in law school, my two roommates, one had been the captain of the Harvard golf team. And uh, he was a great guy. And oh my gosh, what a golfer. And so my other roommate, he, uh, we always called him the senator. And he was born without a right hand. 
and uh, didn't stop in the least. The first time I met him, we were uh, on a field and we were just taking some infield practice playing softball because that was practice for a league that we were going to be in. He jumps in with a glove and he's at second base and we're turning two. And I'm at short. I get the ball, I pivot, and I toss it to him. And, you know, all these thoughts go through your mind like, how's this going to happen? Well, he's got his glove in his left hand. He catches it, flips the ball up, tucks the glove under his right, you know, right arm, grabs the ball, and throws it to first. And same thing in golf. He had an overhanded grip. Um, tennis. It did, I mean... No matter what it was, he was involved and he was great. And so the three of us made quite a trio. Of course, we really had four people sleeping in this house. It was built in like 1900. They had to put the, uh, the plumbing on the outside of the house because it was built before we had all these conveniences. And uh, yeah, we had a fourth guy in the house who just slept on our couch and we charged him rent. So... He worked really hard in law school. I had to work really hard. Um, so much of it at the beginning was so foreign to me, but um, you, know, you worked hard. You go to the library, 11 o'clock at night, you're at a pizza joint, you're talking about the law, and then you're trying to, video games had just come out, do that, or, and you do that kind of every day. And then Sundays, you try and catch up a little on, like my big deal was contracts. I remember my contract book that was about two inches thick and just going through cases on Sunday and trying to read ahead and make my little crib notes and all that about what the case was about. What a process. So I meet, I, I, you know, you, you're paying for your way through school. I had a couple of loans, but, um, I needed to work some more. And so my second year, starting my second year, I got a job as a, as a waiter. And uh, it's a great gig. It's cash. You know, you can eat. You can make hours so that you can still go to school and study and all that stuff. Um, and so I get with this group of people, and it's like 12 guys and 12 girls and... We open up this new restaurant, and it was in Santa Clara, and I'm telling you, it was really a hot spot. So Diane, my wife Diane and I, uh, were, she was part of the 12, and I was part of the 12, and she had a girlfriend, a boyfriend rather, and I had a girlfriend, but those kind of fell by the wayside, and we were all hanging out as a group, and that's how we got together, and I mean, look, she was absolutely stunning. She still is to me, but she was, she is remarkable. And we got together, and um, so we got married in my final semester of law school. And um, then the next thing is studying for the bar exam. So I'm plugging away, and it was every night, and it's like, uh, you know, a course that starts at 7 and ends at 10, and then you go home, and I would go home, and I would uh, recapture my notes um, on the bar review course materials that you would have. So that on one page, I wrote very small, but on one page, 
I could have all of the elements of whatever that subject matter was. And that way, at a glance, I could continue to look at it and continue to refresh my memory about what it was. So I was very diligent. And it's about two weeks to the bar exam. And Diane comes home from working, and she was so excited. She, uh, she, she's so happy. And I'm saying, what, what, what? She said, well, you know, I went to the doctor today. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. She said, well, I'm pregnant. And my first reaction was, wow, and that is just great. Because now <laughs> I'm realizing two weeks to the bar exam, the pressure's on. So um, anyway, got through the bar exam, started practicing law. It was very, very different experience than I thought it was going to be. And I was back in the Monterey area and got a job working for an, uh, an attorney who was really a good trial attorney, but it was a small office. And, oh, about a year or so before, the part, one of the partners, um, and everyone was Italian. This was Mike Pinelli, and the other partner was Nat Agliano, and he was appointed to the bench as a superior court judge. And the office was in Salinas across a lawn from the courthouse. So Nat was in that courthouse, and I was there, and I was... Besides the head guy, I was the only other licensed, now licensed, practicing attorney. We had another guy from the East Coast who just was trying to pass the bar exam and couldn't. So I was running around doing everything and in court almost every day. And it just, for me, a grind, and I really didn't enjoy it. And after about six months of this, I called Nat, and I said, Nat, I don't think I could do this. And he said, where are you? I said, I'm over at the office. He said, well, do we still have scotch in the library? I said, yeah. He said, okay, I'll be over about four. So he came over and we had this conversation and he said, he, he told me his experience and he said, look, you, you have to give this a chance. You don't know yet. You haven't been in it long enough. But if you stick in it for five years, then you'll know and you'll not regret leaving it too early. He was a very good lawyer and a terrific jurist. So I stuck it out. And after about three years in the office, four years in the office, I opened my own office in Monterey. So I was closer to family and home and had support. And so Diane was working. Um, she told me that uh, after Andrea was born, she just wanted two years where she could just be with Andrea at home. So she did that, and I was practicing law. And then... I decided to open up my own place in Monterey. We moved back to Monterey. We really can't afford a place on our own. We, we had bought a condo and sold the condo, had some cash, used the cash to start the office. And um, so we moved in with my parents. Well, this was a hell of a year to do that. Monterey was in a drought, so you were limited in the amount of water that you could use. We were in the house that I grew up in, which has three bedrooms and one bath. And my sister, who was married to a ball player who played with the Dodger organization, actually was called up. And I had a chance to see him the first time he played. It was in Candlestick Park. He was a great guy. Um, anyway, we're all in one house. And we have two kids. So we have a bed that Diane and I are sharing and a crib for Andrea and another bed for our daughter, Kristen. And 
we have a little tiny desk and that's in one room. And I can't tell you what an experience that was, but my parents were terrific. Not that there weren't some difficult times. Um, and Diane was working and she wanted to get into education. That was her background. Her father was a professor at University of Cal, uh, Cal State University at Hayward. And they had done some remarkable things, um, in, including he started uh, like a teacher's college in Somalia. So her family lived in Somalia for a year and a half or two years, and it was a life-changing experience for Diane. But in any event, she wants to get back into education, so she um, is working towards her credential now. So she is commuting to San Jose State once a week. She's also working as a waitress, and I'm working as an attorney, and we've got the girls, so we've got all this stuff going on. Um, and somehow or other, you get through, just like everybody. We all uh, have experienced things like this in our life. And uh, so the following December, so it was a little less than a year, I'm practicing law, and I work out a deal to buy this house. And I'd been uh, teaching a class at the college also to make ends meet, which was a real estate law that people were required to take to get their real estate broker's license. And um, one of my students uh, had this home, and um, she thought it was a real good deal. She knew what I was looking, so I purchased this home. I had five notes on the home, the last note of which was like 500 bucks from an uncle who I was closest to. And uh, we made it all work and somehow <laughs> dealt with all that, those loans. Um, and then I was engaged in the practice of law and it just, even after the five years, it just didn't suit me. And I tried to move out of litigation. I got more and more involved in transactional work and I bought and sold a lot of restaurants. And being from Monterey, uh, the high school football coach and baseball coach became mayor of Monterey. And while he was a councilman, he wanted to run for mayor. And so they wanted me to be the campaign manager. And I think it was more to educate me about what was going on. And I learned so much in that process. And so then when he did it again, I was again his campaign manager. And uh, that whole process uh, was, was uh, another learning experience. Um, and dealing with, uh, uh, dealing with the state of California and um, you know, reporting contributions and uh, what happened with the money and all that stuff, um, dealing with the paper, writing letters to the editors, hosting coffees and talks and, um, you know, putting out position papers and all of that stuff. It was, uh, it was very interesting. And I had, I'd been asked to run for the council and I just, I said no because I wanted more experience. I mean, I, that's a responsibility. Um, so I turned that down, but then I was appointed to uh, the Architectural Review Committee for the city of Monterey. And it was kind of like I was on this track um, and it was to get into politics of the city of Monterey and, and uh, it was just progressing in that manner. 
Uh, and so while I was on the landscape control committee, yeah, architectural landscape committee, I had a wonderful gentleman. He was my Mr. Miyagi. And he was a Japanese-American landscape architect. Um, I really, he taught me so much, and not just about design and composition and plant materials and colors and massing, and, but about the way you treat people and how respectful you are and how appreciative you are. And uh, he kind of took me under his wing. And I'm so, so grateful to him. Um, he, uh, he was really, really great. Again, you know, I never imagined that I would ever come down to the desert. Uh, never imagined in a million years that I would be living in Palm Springs area for now almost 30 years. Uh, so none of these experiences that I had in my past did I equate to what I would be doing later in my life. So again, I still didn't like practicing law. And I had, I had befriended a, an attorney in Monterey. His office had burned down. I had an extra office. I just brought him in. And his wife was a legal secretary to another guy I had in my office. And so I just let him use the library and just be there. And he was there for like two months while his office was being repaired. And we just got to know each other. And I didn't charge him anything. And I said, don't be ridiculous. Just use whatever you need. So we kind of kept in contact. And it turns out that he was the requisite blood quantum uh, Native American uh, Alaskan. And he ran for and became a director and officer of a, an Alaska Native Corporation, what's, what's called a regional corporation. And um, anyway, just as a little aside, in Alaska, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act settled all Aboriginal land claims, and it was in order to be able to build across Alaska the Trans-Alaska Pipeline to get oil down from the north slope down to Alaska and then shipped out to the world uh, because there wasn't a nice free port year-round in the north slope of Alaska. So that was enacted in 1971, and there were a couple of waves of, I'd say, white consultants to the native Alaskans. The first wave came in, and the, the advice wasn't very good. So, the, so in the Settlement Act, the native Alaskans split up about a billion dollars. It was $963 million and 44 million acres of land. And the idea was, it wasn't going to be a reservation. The idea was to preserve and perpetuate the culture of the native Alaskans. And so they found where they thought a corporation was the best way of doing it. It had an unlimited life. People could become shareholders. They could be for profit. They could take capital. They could invest it. They could then um, create profits, they could distribute that, they could grow, they could have uh, um, you know, foundations to educate their native Alaskans, et cetera. As a matter of fact, in the act, they, um, they could be discriminatory. In other words, the whole idea was to promote native Alaskan culture. So in their hiring practices, they didn't have to hire anybody or anyone who was qualified, they could 
hire native Alaskans and their own, their own corporate members. So if you could prove yourself to be, I think it was one quarter native Alaskan, then you got 100 shares of stock in the regional corporation, and there were 13 of those, and actually 12 that had land, and then 200 village corporations. And it was all determined by your family connections and where your family lived in Alaska and what their subsistence hunting or fishing areas were and so on. So this attorney is on the board of a native Alaskan corporation and uh, he calls me in Napa, California. I'm in Napa in a motel room. It's 1130 at night and I'm up there because uh, it's a, California Taxi Cab Owners Association annual meeting. And my cousins uh, took over all the ca taxi cab service on the Nat Monterey Peninsula. So we bought four other taxi cab companies, or I was the attorney handling the action. So anyway, he calls me and he says who it is, and I'm surprised to even hear from him, especially in Napa at this time of night. And he says, would you be interested in coming to Alaska? And that started the ball rolling and uh, gave me an opportunity to shift gears and do something else. And that was very, very influential. And actually, I would say, got me here to Bighorn, ultimately. So as much as I disliked practicing law and how difficult it was, I, you know, you're always, you're kind of looking for something to hang on to. And I was very fortunate. I mean, Diane and my family were wonderful. And gave me the strength to continue through that period while I was searching because I didn't like what I was doing. So, you know, in the early 80s, In Search of Excellence comes out. I pick up a coffee and I start reading it. And it's like a bolt of lightning. And uh, I read it and reread it and underlined things and would think about things. And it was like, okay, the world is right again. You have a value that you want to follow and you do things in accordance with that value, and you're successful. Isn't that the way it should be if the value's good? Whether true or not, it didn't matter because it was like that lifeboat for me, and it made such an impact on me. This opportunity to go to Alaska and to be part of this Native Alaskan corporation. Remember, I'm product of the 60s in a way, right? And those, that altruism sticks in you. So now I'm going to help uh, basically an underserved segment of America that maybe was taken advantage of, again, right or wrong, it's perception. And I'm gonna go up there and help them. So it was like things were falling into place. And I went up and I, we spent five years in Alaska and I was exposed to so many incredible things. Small corporation, there were only about 10 of us who really did everything. Our, our territory was a portion of the Alaska Peninsula and the entire Aleutian Island chain. We, we left Alaska in 1989. Uh, it, it was a wonderful thing for the family. It, I think it brought our nuclear family all together. We had experiences of, you know, the girls really learned to ski, um, but skiing together, backpacking together, hiking, cross-country skiing, wonderful trips, just driving around. I mean, Alaska is like this state of nothing but national monuments. 
you drive around one turn and you say, wow, that's incredible. And then you drive around the next and that's even more incredible. Really a wonderful experience. So I could have gone right back to Monterey and picked up right where I left off, but didn't want to because it was just too confining. So my sister is living in Palm Springs area. She says, why don't you come down and try this? And Diane did not want to be in any large urban area with a lot of density. So LA was out, maybe San Diego, but so we came down here. Of course, she gets a job immediately. Me, on the other hand, I don't want to go back to practicing law. And I had several offers to join a law practice, but I I had such a great experience with the corporation because it was doing everything, but it was all business and creating things. And I've used this analogy before to try and describe the difference in a very simplistic way. When you're practicing law, a client comes in and sits in your client chair and is upset and wants you to be the person to find the weakest link and to shatter that link. When you're in business, every morning someone comes in and drops this box of links on your desk and they're old and rusted and some fit and some don't and you're asked to make a chain. And that so much better suited my personality. So get to this point where practice law or not practice law and I really don't want to. So. And I'm going to ask you to just stop there because now we're going to go into the Palm Springs experience and how that brings you to Bighorn and involved with Bighorn. But right now we want to stop and have a message from Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and then we'll be right back with Carl Cardinelli. You're buying more than a diamond ring or you're buying more than a watch when you come to Leeds and Son. You're buying integrity, you're buying value, you're buying the best products in the world brought to the Coachella Valley with great care. Leeds and Son, the Coachella Valley's jewelry experts. Thanks again to Leeds and Son for their support bringing you these Bighorn Podcasts. Now the part of the story that not only affects you, but affects the rest of us. You're in Palm Springs, you're in the desert area. What happens next? Uh, yes, there's, I was here for a little while, and I'll explain. So come down, Diane gets offered a job. I'm getting to a point where I have to now have a job because our daughter Kristen is attending UC uh, in San Diego and with both girls our our idea and our uh, belief was that they needed to contribute to their education that would be more meaningful for them so they both had to do some work and some contribution but we would pick up the bulk of it um, and so Diane's working but now I needed a job so I um, was diligent at this but I answered an, uh, a call for a job with the city of San Jose to be a senior city attorney. And it was only transactional work, so I wasn't in court. And I thought, well, there's another interesting thing, but I, now I am desperate. So I flew up there, I was offered the job, took the job. So now I'm going to be in the Bay Area while Diane and Andrea are here and Kristen's in San Diego. I end up living with Diane's parents in Hayward. And I am I've learned so, or I learned so much about Diane in that experience. It was wonderful, but her parents were fantastic. And I learned a lot with the city of San Jose. I was responsible for 
a lot of the real estate er areas, such as the uh, negotiating the leases for all of the uh, rental cars and um, food um, vendors at San Jose International Airport. They were going through urban redevelopment. There were some you know, other land use issues that I dealt with over the course of time. And uh, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, and I felt like I was doing, I was making a good contribution to the city and the city's efforts. Well, a few things happened. One, we're negotiating with Host International at the airport and uh, we finish about eight hours of negotiation and we go to the airport manager's office and it's the, it's the fateful game of the Giants and A's, the first time in the Bay Area the World Series is occurring with both Bay Area teams and the earthquake hits. Well, it just shook the whole airport. It shook the whole Bay Area. Um, we didn't know what was going on. And then we had all of these reports coming in where the Bay Bridge had fallen into the Bay and uh, no one could land on San Francisco International because the airport had buckled and it just went on and on. So. Initially, we run out of the building, which was upstairs, and down out into the parking lot. And then one of the first aftershock hits. And we literally are feeling this freight train and seeing the asphalt coming at us in a wave and goes under our feet and through. So it was pretty hectic. But anyway, everyone knows the outcome of that. But that was one, of, one instance in San Jose. So in the meantime, I'm working there, but I'm, I'm looking for work, and my sister tells me about this opportunity in Palm Desert. And actually, a headhunter calls me. And uh, so I had put in an application, and a headhunter calls me and made her laugh. And so she sets up a meeting with um, Westinghouse Desert Communities. So I come down for the meeting, and... Uh, they, at the time, the president of Westinghouse Communities, which is located in Florida, was a guy named Joe Frazier. And it was his idea to buy the property here in Palm Desert. A friend of his was Bill McComas, who was instrumental in all this, and later on, as you know, a member of Bighorn. So, um, so they're telling me about the president, Joe Frazier, and I look at him and I go, you mean smoking Joe Frazier? So we had a laugh about that, and they said, no, no, this is non-smoking Joe Frazier. But it just broke the ice, and we were able just to have a really good conversation, and, um, and they wanted me. So my first day of work was uh, June 18th or 19th. It was the day after Father's Day. And uh, it was, that's meaningful for me because I had a chance to come home and give my wife and daughter a hug and... and uh, and so it was just great. So Westinghouse Desert Communities, they're a small group of us, but passionate. And a couple of people who had come from Arizona and loved the desert and didn't think they would because they're from New England and then Florida. Um, but we had some really, really good people. And initially, it was just fantastic. We, would, we had... Um, landscape architects, land designers, et cetera. 
and they appreciated the land and wanted to maintain it. In fact, our catch phrase and whole marketing thing before we were ever out of the ground was in partnership with nature. And the first photograph of marketing was um, taken from up in the foothills, um, looking down on Bighorn and Bighorn Mountain. And it was in a desert setting. And all it said was Bighorn in partnership with nature. It was very effective. So we start, we build the golf course. I get here a month after ground is broken. Um, and then we just put everything together and started this adventure. Well, um, we had a great first year and then things started to get slow and then we hit a, a really a recession in 94 and we made like one or two sales and everybody was shipped out of here except for me and Joe Curtis. So I was, I had every title and I, uh, I was in charge of selling this asset for Westinghouse. So every day, or it wasn't every day, but so many days, um, I would, they would bring in a potential buyer and I would tour them around, discuss what this concept was, show them what Bighorn was, but told them what Bighorn could be. And then Joe and I would go into the library of the clubhouse and we'd answer their questions for an hour or hour and a half and then they'd be gone. And so not only did I do this once, but did it twice because it was bought by this group out of Florida who were real estate developers and they were only interested in the Florida assets, not the assets in Arizona or California. So we were back on the market and went through the same process. And fortunately in that interim is when Mr. Hubbard put together the group of member owner investors to purchase Bighorn from this developer in Florida. And it's just, it's really much easier and tells the story um, in a more fundamental way to just say it was purchased from Westinghouse because essentially it was. This other developer was nothing but a holder for a period of time. Um, so in the course of trying to sell Bighorn, I would go home to Diane and she'd hand me a glass of scotch and I'd say to her, "Hun, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm literally, my job is to sell myself out of a job. And, uh, and boy, the scotch would taste good after that. But, <laughs> you know, you, you go through times like that and you have to rely on whatever creates your strength. And you have to get up and you have to go in, you have to be professional and you have to continue to think about the objective. So um, I, I did all of that. And, but there's something that just burns inside of you. You know, when you know something can be fantastic and you really believe in um, the outcome of the endeavor and you don't know if it's ever going to be uh, brought to fruition or you don't know that it's 
going to be able to optimize its potential. And I really thought I was out of here. So we even made arrangements where Diane moved up to the Bay Area and we were trying to decide where we wanted to live. So we picked Santa Cruz and she went up and she became a principal again. She was a principal here in one of the distinguished schools. She goes and becomes a principal in Santa Cruz and she wins a distinguished school. And then when she returns to this area, she wins another distinguished school. But so we have an apartment in Santa Cruz. It's like three blocks above the wharf. And for a year and a half or two years on the weekends, I'm commuting or she's commuting. And that was our relationship. And I would just work here. I'd go into the gym in the clubhouse and I'd work out and then go home, grab a bite. And then that was my routine until a weekend. And then I'd fly up to Santa Cruz. And so... Mr. Harvard comes in and buys Bighorn, and I still didn't think I was going to stick, so we still did the whole Santa Cruz thing. Tell me about your first meeting with R.D. Hubbard. Well, you know, I don't know that I remember the very first meeting, but I remember some of the first meetings, and maybe two in particular. One was before, when he was considering whether to buy the former head pro, but a kind of a direct line to Hubbard. Uh, and I really wanted Hubbard to buy the place I because I knew he, he under, I don't know that he understood everything that it could be at the time, but he saw the value in it and he had invested here and he had built his home here and his friends had built homes here. And, um, you know, he was the real deal and he could make it work. So, um, I provided some financial information as to how this operates and what it could be, et cetera. And I gave it to the head pro. He gave it to Hubbard. Hubbard could review it and he could decide. I mean, I was, I didn't want to see Bighorn go by the wayside or what it could be. So we're meeting at uh, the turn, which that's the marketplace, but before when it really was the turn. And it's Donnie, I, and Mr. Harvard. And so we're going through things and he's asking questions. And, you know, he's a powerful presence. And he, his questions are always on the money. And um, so we're talking and he gets a phone call. Well, the phone call is the owner of the Seattle Seahawks, because this is at a time when he's trying to get a National Football League team to do something at Hollywood Park. And uh, he's just talking and conversing, and I'm going, wow, what a place or what a guy or what his life must be like. Um, and boy, that was just a peak under the covers, you know what I mean? I mean, it's really unbelievable. So another time, it's the first meeting with the members at Bighorn after the purchase. And question is asked about current management. And he says, well, we're going to hire a general manager and then we're going to let that general manager decide about you know, who's going to stay at Bighorn and be part of the management team. So now I'm convinced I'm gone. So anyway, um, 
new GMs brought in and my, I just tried to provide as much support and background as I could, bringing out all the potential of what Bighorn could be and how it could be. And the other thing was we were always known for service, even at that time. But I believe it's because of this quality of Bighorn, right? In other words, look, if you want to work here, you're going to work at one of the best places ever. And our job is to give the best possible service we can. And here's what that service looks like. And if there's someone there you, that needs help, you do something. You help them. You know, don't sit around. Address it. You know? Um, so that was the kind of thing that I was talking about to the new GM and all. And so we established a good rapport and things, things were moving along. And then Hubbard did this phenomenal deal with Safeco. And there was a year where all of that was kind of being fleshed out. And, um, and I know in past podcasts, he's discussed it. And all I can tell you is it was the most one of the most brilliant transactions to acquire a development and have someone else go through the permitting process and have somebody else go through the, the payment for... This is the canyons this aspect the canyon of it, side, right? Yeah, yeah and the, you know, the background to that is <clears throat> the mountains was built, designed by Art Hills, great guy. It was hard as hell. You know, you can't have a private... Uh, community golf course that you lose a half dozen balls on your first nine holes. Um, so art was great. While I was at the helm, I said, art, we got to do something and here's what we want to do. And I worked with the head prof. So we altered the holes and art was terrific. He said, don't worry about it, Carl. I understand what you're doing. I like it. I know where you're going. I'll send someone out and I'm not going to take my name off the course. We'll be fine with it. Don't worry. So if you have any questions, call. And so, you know, like on what is now the third hole, the long par five, we pushed out the right-hand side to make a greater landing area. Uh, same thing was true on the second hole. Uh, we, anyway, I could go on, but we made improvements to make it more receptive to an amateur golfer. That was the knock on the course. So if we could get another course and have two courses and make this one playable, how much better would that make Bighorn and how much more attractive? And we could get rid of all the naysayers about the course we have. And then the people who play it, they'll realize how terrific it is. And that's exactly how things panned out. When the deal is struck with Safeco, and now Mr. Hubbard and the group takes over, it was... A remarkable time. It was just like you totally believed and knew that everything was going to come to pass. Everything was going to come to fruition. It was going to be a fantastic place. And that kind of enthusiasm is just like a wildfire. Now, everybody around you is feeling that way. And there isn't anything that you wouldn't do to do it. And you wake up and can't wait to come to work. And you go to bed thinking about it. And the same thing happens the next day. So... In this process, someone comes to me because I still don't know that I'm staying and offers me a job and money and interest and all this stuff. And I go in and submit my resignation. 
and, um, and it's not accepted. And so Harvard meets with me and he makes me an offer I can't refuse. And in that, he puts me in charge of the development of the residential portion or common area portion, too, of the canyons on behalf of Bighorn. So for, you know, two years or two and a half years, I'm shorts and boots and walking and in the dirt and talking and designing and preparing and doing all of that stuff. We had a terrific group of people working on it and a uh, uh, wonderful designer. And, and um, gosh, every single thing that you see over there was selected and picked out and placed and installed and made to work. And we tried to look at everything in relation to everything else. So I remember so many days of walking the dirt with um, the Fazio representative, Kevin Sutherland, and then the landscape architect, Don Vita, um, the engineer, uh, Rich Clark, and uh, then you know, maybe the project manager or someone else, and we're walking and we're talking about, okay, so the fairway's here, and what's the transition, and how does that, where's that home site going to be, and how's that home situated, and where are the palms going to go, and where, it was everything. Um, it was, uh, it was just all engrossing. Did you ever think at that time, Carl, thinking back to when you were working with your dad, back on those homes and sites and and all the stuff that you learned at that time did you make that connection even at that time no um since that time and i think as you mature and get older you know uh, a lot of the noise goes out of your head and a lot of the appreciation enters you and that's when i started to make the connections and as i mentioned to you earlier Actually, this preparing for this, if I could even call it preparation, <laughs> just makes you think about those connections. And there's some subtleties that I hadn't realized about the connections in my life. But you're absolutely right. Um, and that's how you get to where you are. So, so, yeah, that was a huge influence. So many things. Like, Let me just, as an aside before we talk about maybe the vault and clubhouse. You know what I often say, and I said this to the whole, I say this to people at Bighorn, but I've said this to the whole construction group. You know, how many times in your life does someone require of you that your job is to bring excellence? You know, it's that's what it is here. It's not just moving my phone from left to right. It's your, you, your job is to be excellent. Your job is to optimize the best parts about you to accomplish an objective. And that's Hubbard. Hubbard has given us that opportunity, given me that opportunity. And uh, it's an enriching part of anyone's life. I mean, really, to... That's, isn't that the greatest thing is optimize who you are and what you are and be as excellent as you can. So looking back, it's the experience with my dad, the experience with the 
Genko Sakamoto, the fellow in the architectural committee. It's the, it's in search of excellence. And it's funny that that word is in that title and that's what we're talking about. Well, and it's not just the accomplishments, but the culture that you create. Because this is not just about the, the tangibles. It's the intangibles that also goes with a place like Bighorn. You feel it when you walk in the doors. But it starts with leadership, for sure. But that permeates the entire staff and, and these inanimate buildings and everything. It's still about the culture that you're creating. And, and to me, that would be the most rewarding thing at the end of the day. Yeah, Bighorn is more than the sum of its facilities. And it's, it's an intangible, you're right. It's an idea, it's a concept, truly. And no one deserves more, more um, credit for that than R.D. Hubbard. Yeah, it starts there. Yeah, absolutely. So, so now you're here, you've got the job, <laughs> and now you have stability. There's no, you're not going anyplace. Right. You become part of this right. very, very special thing that you realize. And now you're creating excellence, as you so aptly put it. Now the growth over this period of time, phenomenal. Amazing. And these things do not happen by accident. And this is where, as I said at the start of this, a person like you, and I know that there's other, a lot of people have contributed to this, but you're part of this leadership that now has created this, this experience, if you will, that's unmatched any place. But that doesn't happen by accident. Talk, us, talk to us about this clubhouse and about what's transpired since these two places, the canyons and mountains, have come together. It's the sum of the people who are part of the team to bring it together and the synergy that that creates. That's really what it is. Um, and it's everybody. It's, it's design, it's construction, it's operations, it's um, legal, it's administrative, it's everything. So, I don't know that this, this Bighorn experience will ever occur again. I mean, just getting back to the facilities, looking at how this came about. Typically, what happens in a club? It's one building, maybe another building. But here, we have an unusual land situation. We have Highway 74 that cuts right through the heart of this. So we're 1,200 acres or just under. And, um, and how do we make it? And this was purposeful. How do we make it so that the community feels like one and it's not one side against the other? There aren't cliques involved. How can people feel like this is all theirs? So this whole notion of the course on the other side and then the golf house and then the tunnel and creating a community. So... Uh, it was ingenious to create the spa, salon, and fitness center. Ingenious. Because now it opened up um, a whole new way of developing and thinking about the community. 
So we became a campus of facilities. And I remember at one of our workshops at the sales office, which we have every year before the start of the season to assess the market, assess where we are, assess what Bighorn is, how we're gonna approach the season, et cetera. We go through every single property. I came up with, look, we have, it's a, it's a campus. We have all these things that are dedicated. Who else has that? And it's true. We have buildings that are built for a dedicated purpose like the spa, salon, and fitness center. And then you can just keep going, redoing the turn into the marketplace, brilliant. You have grandkids and they want Oreos, you go down the street. You have your favorite paper, Investors Daily or whatever, you go down the street and you bring your dog and you get a doggy biscuit and coffee and you go sit in the dog park. You know, who does this? And this is all cutting edge, no one had done it before. So, then the steakhouse. Truly, Marty, if you're sitting around with a bunch of members and somebody at your club says, hey, let's build a steakhouse, right? You would say, oh, that's great. And then you'd say, we'd never be able to sustain it. Can't make it on its own. That didn't stop R.D. Hubbard. Just the belief in this and the belief in the membership and the belief of what this could do and then look at what has happened. Steakhouse is a fantastic place. So members at Bighorn have all these different dining experiences that they could have. And each one of them is treated as a standalone restaurant to produce something that's unique and appealing and valuable and create an environment where people wanna go and enjoy. Um, so the, now, you know, the ball starts rolling. The steakhouse was incredible. By the way, as an aside, another kind of comment about Hubbard. Place is built. Within six months, he comes into my office and says, I think we gotta make some changes. We gotta expand the outdoor eating area. We gotta open up the the bar area so it's more accessible and works better. And so, you know, we're scrambling the start of the summer, we start to make these alterations. But my point in bringing that up is, Hubbard is interested in making these facilities the best they can be. You know, and they don't get that way unless he's listening and paying attention. So it's not just his observations, which are constant, but look, where else can you find the guy who makes decisions, the CEO, anytime, any day? He's having lunch with you, he's having dinner with you, he's on the golf course with you, he's playing cards with you, he's walking around campus with you, he's at the spa, salon, and fitness center with you. You could go up as a member and say, hey, D, you know, have you ever considered? I know because I'm on this side of the Bighorn line that he listens because he'll come to me and he'll say things about what people have said and he asks for input. Bighorn is not about ego. He's not about ego. 
Bighorn is about objective, and he's about objective. I've never met a more pragmatic person in my life, and I've learned so much from him. So, hence, six months after we finish a brand new steakhouse, he wants to make some alterations to it, and we do, and it becomes better. So, we're, we do remodels. We're remodeling the clubhouse, you know. You know, you've heard we remodeled it nine significant times, let alone all the other stuff we did. Um, we did things um, at the spa salon and remodeled that. Um, so now this idea comes up about the vault. There's a lot of car enthusiasts. What a, what a phenomenal thing. So down to Christy Hansen's office, working with the design, uh, then it's cost situation. Ed Berger and I are reviewing things. Then it's hiring a contractor and then overseeing that construction. And it's new. It's different. It's a vibe. But it's something that our members uh, want or some of our members want. Enough of our members want to make it worthwhile and to contribute to their lifestyle and their enjoyment of life. So we do it. And uh, just the team in that was, was terrific with Kathy Blackbird and Bob Call. And, uh, and look at the outcome. You know, I mean, how much fun is that place? And when you first walked into it, you were blown away by it. I mean, we have people who come in who are prospective buyers or members or just visitors, and they're blown away by it. So really remarkable. Uh, and I had the pleasure of working with Jay Westman to finish off the project. And he was in, you know, he's like so many of our members, so Bighorn, so enthusiastic about Bighorn. Um, so great experience. So now <clears throat> we're still finishing up the vault. And it'll be done in about six months or so. And Hubbard comes into my office and says, Carl, I think we need a new clubhouse. About four years earlier, I had conducted a thing with all the managers during the summer. And Hubbard kind of wanted a state of Bighorn report, right? Because he's always looking to improve. So we talked about all sorts of things. And I did a separate memo to him about the remodel of the clubhouse. And I had a formula of doing it in quadrants. So we wouldn't be without a clubhouse during the year, but it would be impactful, obviously. So he didn't think it was the right time. He didn't think it was the right idea. So we didn't do it. So now he's in my office, February of 2015, and says, uh, we we need a new clubhouse. And of course I ask him a remodel and you know, in his typical fashion, no Carl. So he talked to me about, you know, members, he'd been talking to some members and it's time. And he was so true. I mean, the old clubhouse was built at a different time for different reasons, for different objectives. Um, very traditional, didn't take advantage of the views, etc. Just, there were so many things that didn't work, but it was so not the bighorn that we know or not the bighorn that was in our minds today or not the bighorn in our minds after Hubbard took over. 
And it was the last vestige of what wasn't. So, um, in the course of the conversation, he says, you know, but we can only be without a clubhouse for one season. I said, okay, you realize how complicated it is. And he goes, I know, Carl. So, um, I said, all right, we're starting from scratch. I mean, this is going to take an all out effort. And he was all in. And obviously we didn't even have an architect. So, um, that afternoon I started to do some investigation and see who uh, was out there, who built clubhouses, who designed them, who were award-winning, who were creative, who all of those things. And it just went on. And so within a month or so, I had um, four or five names that I suggested to him and talked to him about. And, um, and he said, fine. And he said, let's bring him in. So I called each of them and had four of them come in to meet with us and uh, and they did and it was Hubbard and I and the architects and in the interim I had talked to a few friends of mine I had worked with who um, worked with uh, clubhouse developers and um, Don Vita he was the guy I worked with on a daily basis I have such respect for him is so good I called him up and I said, Don, here's what we're doing. Here's, you know, I want you to be involved in the landscape design. Or I need your help, but you're going to have to fast track it because and blah, blah, blah. He said, um, anything that he could do. And I said, so these architects, when they come in, we're going to want a concept. What do you think? Would they do it? I said, well, Carl, if this was, you know, seven, eight years ago, yeah, everyone was scrambling around looking for work, but now everyone's busy, so they're probably going to want to get paid said, okay, so back to Hubbard. Now we're meeting with these guys. I share with Hubbard what I've heard. And as we finish up the conversation, Hubbard looks at him and says, you know, we're going to want to have a concept. You can do that, can't you? And of course, they all say yes. And they say, well, and then he says, moving right along, how soon do you think you could have one? And then they say, well, it's probably going to be about 30 days. And that was kind of across the board said, okay, then uh, when you get something back, call Carl and we'll get together again. And uh, one time we had an architect who said, uh, so you want us to do this, I mean, without compensation, is that right? And he goes, that's right. And they all did. I think it's just the power of the man. So we get the concepts back and go through them and the one person, and, and what would happen with each of these meetings is the architects would come in, I would take them on a tour, I would tell them what Bighorn was and what this objective was, tell them about Hubbard and what he's all about, and this was going to be a legacy. And, um, and I mentioned how pragmatic Hubbard was. You know, he doesn't look at this like this is an all-time Taj Mahal. He says he wants it to be good for 20 or 30 years, and then he knows there'll be something else. But it's got to be that good to be relevant for the next 20 or 30 years. So uh, I'd meet with them, tell them all this stuff. We'd meet with Hubbard, and then he'd send them on their way to do their task and then come down and meet us. Well, with Sather, who we ultimately selected with Swaback Partners, he was just one man. 
the only single individual who came and met with us. And when we finished that, he said to me, do you mind if I take some pictures and walk around? No, he went and did that. Then he called the airport and his flight was delayed. He said, do you mind if I go through the old clubhouse and walk around? And he did that. And then he started with concepts. And uh, his design, which is what we're in right now, blew us away. And the other designs were creative. One was pretty traditional. One was creative. One group came in and um, spent a week here. And I'd meet with them every afternoon because they would look around, then they'd do something, then they'd have drawings, then we'd look at them, critique them, and then tell them what we liked, what we didn't like. The next day, they'd go through the same process. So anyway, Sather's design captured our attention. And before you know, I said what I liked, um, Hubbard, Hubbard wanted to know what I liked, so... I mentioned it to him, but he already liked Sather too. So we were on the same page for sure. So now we select the architect. So now we know we're going to go through a conceptual design. And then from conceptual design, we'll develop the drawings further to be able to bid on them, right? But you know, we're trying to do this with being down only one season. I mean, it's, a, it's an unbelievable task with a building of this complexity and size. So, and frankly, everybody was skeptical that it could be done. But remember, I had some training under Hubbard. When we were on the Canyon side, there were always deadlines. And that's the whole point, right? Um, Maybe this will take a year and a half to complete, but Hubbard's deadline would be a year. And he wouldn't give you that unless he thought you could do it. But he knew you had to press, but you needed to get it done. And so I was very fortunate that they have terrific people around who could execute to be able to meet his deadlines, except for this clubhouse, which I missed by three days. (laughs) And he never lets me forget it. (laughs) So in any event, I now think this is so fast, we have to have the construction firm involved from the beginning because we can't have a designer go off and design things that can't be built or we can't get materials or something's not fitting together. That can't be. We don't have the luxury of any delay time. So I had worked with um, Scott Free, who's the CEO of Lusardi, but at the time wasn't, um, like 10 years before or so. And we were looking at Uh, kind of a condo project at Bighorn. And it was going to be over behind the 17th tee box, back up into the cove where the reservoirs are. And they were beautiful units. Worked with an architecture firm in um, Irvine area and um, had some really expert guys working on it. And there were three buildings, five units each. They were uh, underground parking, then two units side-by-side, then two units on top of that side by side, and then a penthouse on top. And really beautiful units and uh, really liked them, but ultimately just didn't make sense. And then we were going into the recession. So that fell by the wayside. But my experience with Scott Free was so good. And I, I liked him so much because he was an objective guy and, I, and genuine. So we now fast forward 
we picked the architect, we need a construction firm. So I'm meeting with Hubbard like on Monday. So I, I want Lusardi and I'm gonna make this pitch to him to have Lusardi. So I prepare my notes and all that stuff and meeting comes about Monday morning. We're talking about the design and membership and how to go about this and transitions and so on. And so there's a little pause and, uh, and I'm ready to jump in. And he says, you know, I think we're going to have to bring on the a construction company. And I, th I think we need to bring one on now. And so I'm thinking, wow, what a tee up. And he says, um, you know, a really good friend of mine is Warner Lusardi. And I think we should contact them and go to Lusardi. I never said another word except <laughs> what a great idea. And, uh, and it came to be. And there's uh, Lusardi Construction Company never disappointed. It was totally consistent. And I can tell you, Scott and I had discussions about how this would work and what they were going to charge us. And it was incredibly reasonable. And they, and they weren't going to get started charging us anything until it was a go and they were actually in the ground. So Lusardi worked for free for nine or ten months. And this wasn't just sitting on the sidelines. They were engaged, and I was engaged, and I was working with Lusardi as well as Swaback. So it was, uh, it was an amazing process. And, um, and then the team started to formulate. So in Lusardi team, um, I can't say enough about Nick Novak. He's their youngest vice president. I think that's right. And they have like 10 of them. But brilliant young mind and guy. And uh, we just, we thought the same way when it came to quality and getting things done. Then John Sather gives us Brent Harris as our architect on site. And he was, he's brilliant, great design mind. And the best part is we all have a great sense of humor and the, the laughter and the needling was just as good as the design and construction. So it was brilliant. Then just young guys, um, Randy Cordova and uh, Tyler Molesworth and with Lusardi. I mean, these kids graduated from Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo with engineering degrees, and they were all in and all engaged and listened and paid attention and got things done. So um, there were a couple of things that allowed us to accomplish this. The, the design and going through it and the presentation that Sather made to the membership and then how we were going to put that together and how the numbers would work and the membership's response which was fantastic, by the way. And then we start demolition and we sign the contract, I think one or two weeks after, with Lusardi, one or two weeks after demolition starts. That's how the relationship was. We accomplish that in a month. We do a little earthwork and then we start construction first week of July. And 16 months later, we're in this building. So some of the things that we did... Um, we took over the spa salon and fitness center for three or four days and we, we put in flat screens and computers and we had them hooked up and then we brought in the design team and the construction team and, and with 3D modeling, 
we're able to talk about where plumbing's going to go and electrical's going to go and where are we going to pull this and how is this going to relate to this and these steel girders, do we have enough room to put in a sewer pipe to get sewage out of the building? I mean, it was amazing. And, um, and also having people together in a room like that talking establishes relationships so that when you are on the phone or where you are on computers that are remote, you know who you're talking to and what this is about. And having them here on campus and being able to see what Bighorn is and listening to us talk about Bighorn was important because my approach with them was this is a once in a lifetime experience. All of you are gonna walk away from this no matter what you do with some pride when you see ad advertisements for Bighorn and when you see Bighorn or hear people talk about Bighorn, you're going to be able to say that you participated in it. Um, so we would have meetings and talks, and I did have a talk with them about excellence, just like I mentioned earlier. But it's true. And if a person believes and buys into it, it's amazing what they can perform. I mentioned this in the Bighorn magazine, but I am walking through the poorhouse, and we have the big curved wall that we use as a banquette to some of our tables in the framing stage. That's a complicated wall. You know, this is steel framing, but that wall, it doesn't go straight up and down. It's curved and it goes out and goes back and there are different angles and we have stuff in the gaps. So I'm walking in and I ask this framer, so how's it going? man it's really it's rough it's hard but I love it and I said what do you mean he said we don't get to do this all the time I said that's a great attitude you're gonna go far in life enjoy your life man way to go but those are the kinds of things and when you have people thinking in that fashion it's amazing what you can accomplish but Carl didn't you also encourage and listen to our employees the people that actually work here and take their input as you put all this together about what their needs were. I mean, that's, that's a buy-in, too, that has to take place. Marty, I can't say enough about our employees. I tell you what, man, it was like for a year they had two jobs. They had the job of moving and the job of operations, and they couldn't miss a beat, and they didn't. Yeah. So after, after getting the architect and the construction company, the next step was I convened a meeting of all of the managers. And we were in the old patio in the old clubhouse. And I had the, the renderings and things from Swab back up on the wall and I had some sheets of paper and, and I just, I told them what was going to happen. And, um, and, and they all bought in and then I explained to them what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to assess what they do, their operations, what they have, take an inventory of everything that they need. Uh, we're gonna have to move those things over into some temporary facilities and they're gonna have to map it all out and we have to operate and be just as good over there as we are when we have a clubhouse. There's no difference. Then, telling them that we don't have to do this now, but you have to think about this plan because we're going to move back into the clubhouse. And you all are going to participate in your areas in giving input to the architects. 
And, um, and it was good because it, it wasn't that I or anybody else on our side had to say to Swabek, you have to meet with these people. They wanted to. So they knew the importance of making this facility utilitarian. It wasn't just aesthetics. Because we have to, I mean, how, unless you're efficient in the way the building's laid out, which the old building wasn't, unless you're efficient with the way it's laid out, then how are you going to serve your members the way they're accustomed to be served, right? How are you going to give excellent service unless you have the facilities that enable you to do that? So, um, and every single one, I mean, I'm telling you that I'm just so proud of everybody who was in this process. Our employees as individuals took responsibility. No one shied away. No one was a wallflower. No one was aggressive to block out someone else. Everybody was cooperative and it was collegial, but it was precise and it was constant. I mean, I, I, this is an example and it could have happened or didn't happen, but in my mind it happened. I could pull in and and Abel would run up to me and say, you know, Carl, I was thinking what we could do is so important. And they were great. And they executed it. So they did their plan. They did their inventory. They moved out. They moved into the new facilities. They conducted a fantastic year. I mean, the revenues out of the club didn't falter in our transition year. Um, Tony Ogrodnik, he deserves a lot of credit. He was fantastic. I, I cannot say enough about him. I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed working with Tony. He's a, the best GM I've ever seen. Um, and he really gets Bighorn. And um, so anyway, we were able to do that and then the move back in. You know, more meetings, more planning. These meetings took place at the steakhouse. And just the timing of it. Look. It's not only that you have a plan in place, but your plan has to be good enough that when we say go in a day, you're in, or two days, you're in. Um, and everybody did it. So just to get back to the clubhouse, uh, I don't know that I could add anything to the Bighorn Magazine on construction, but all of those elements and all those people who participated, and including just because of the you know, Saturday we're going to have a celebration of life for Kathy Blackbird. There was, there was no question in my mind or Hubbard's mind that we wanted Blackbird Interiors to do the interiors of the clubhouse. We were in a meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona at Swalbeck's offices, and Swalbeck has an interior designer, and the interior designer comes in and makes a pitch. And Hubbard and I are sitting together, and after a little while, I'll lean over to, her, to him and say, I, I don't think this is going to work. And his response to me was, I know, we'll talk at the break. So we take a break, and he says, um, this isn't going to work. And he says, you know who we have to call? I said, I know. He says, well, call and see if they're available, and let's get them going on this because we don't have any time to lose. So I go outside and I make a phone call to Bob Call. And uh, of course they're busy and they don't know if they can handle it. And one of the things about it is they felt that it was a project that could be overwhelming. You know, here they are, they're members here. This is a signature. Um, 
they have to come through. They have to satisfy the whole membership. And from our standpoint, it's nobody knows the membership better. So you should be the ones to come in and to do the furnishing, furniture and furnishings. Well, Kathy, what a sweetheart, but every step of the way, she was just all engaged and, uh, and Bob and their son, Max. So just one of the many contributors to this outcome. Yeah, it was really an amazing experience. And a lot of people have said, well, you're probably burning the candle at both ends and you're exhausted, aren't you happy it's over? It wasn't like that at all. When you're, when you're engaged in something that is your passion, again, you can't wait to get up. You think about it all the time. I wake up at night and have finally a solution and an idea, and you love it. You thrive on it. So... Um, so it's great, and 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 really, um, I appreciate your comments about me. But Marty, it, it's it's this village, it's this team, right? You know, you can you can go out and pitch a no hitter, but if no one gets up and scores any runs, you're not going to be the winner of the game. And everybody plays a part in that, and even in a no hitter. How many times is there one or two spectacular plays that maybe you'd never see? So this has been my fondest experiences at Bighorn have been related to the people that I work with or get to work with. Um, and, and clearly, without exception, to the person who makes the decisions. Yeah, R.D. Hubbard is truly a visionary, and that, and and he deserves that title, and and we've been very fortunate. Yeah, well, I can tell you, I speak on part of the, the membership that, you know, we can't tell you how much we appreciate everything that everybody has done to make this happen, because we now get the benefits of all this. But uh, as I said at the start of this. It, this doesn't happen by accident. I've got a couple of questions for you to, to kind of end this and then just a short little talk about the future. Um, one question everybody would li like to know, was there ever a time, Carl, that you just thought maybe we can't make this deadline? Never. Okay. With all your accomplishments, what still drives you today? I guess I appreciate life. Yeah, it's a little philosophical, but what the heck? You know, as you get older, the uh, beauty of it, the experience of it, just, I don't know, gets more profound. I really do. I love the people that I get to be with and the experiences. I mean, waking up and seeing a blue sky and... The mountains. I mean, everything. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? Honesty. That they have ideas. That they ask questions because they're curious and actually want to know and not for show. That given a task, they want to perform it. That they're enthusiastic about performing it. That they want to know the reason why. I never have an objection to anybody asking me, why are we doing this? 
but I have an objection to someone after I explain why we're doing it, saying, well, I don't think that's good enough. If they don't have a response to explain why they don't think it's good enough and it contributes ultimately to making something better. I'm not looking for the person who says no. I'm looking for the person who says they can do it. How would you describe your leadership philosophy? Well, I guess belief in the people who supposedly I'm leading. In other words, that they can get this done. And ultimately, you know, they will be the ones to decide that. I mean, people weed themselves out all the time. Um, and, and if you're evaluating them, you're evaluating them on how they get and whether they get something done timely, right? Um, and there are other factors. I mean, obviously, chemistry among people in a group or an organization is critical. You have to all be pulling the oars in the same way. And if you're not, then you're not suited for this. Two other quick questions. Who's had the greatest influence on your life? That's multiple answers. You know, it's, it's family, my father, my mother, Diane, the girls, um, individuals along the way. Uh, one of my very best friends was an attorney for Bighorn. I met him a week after I got here. He's passed away about five years ago from cancer. But uh, incredible person. Um, you know, gen generational people who are here. Weintraub was, uh, he was an influence and a friend. I mean, it was another little aside. You know, he called me up on a Friday, and it'd be like 1 o'clock, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working. I said, what do you mean you're working? I said, I'm working. I'm in my office working. I'm trying to get some things done because it's Friday afternoon. I said, what does that have to do with it? He said, nobody works from 1 o'clock on on Friday afternoon. Come on up and have a drink with me. I can't. I'm working. So I'd have to negotiate, and he'd never take no for an answer. So I negotiated till 4 o'clock before I had to go up and have a drink with him. But he was, he was terrific. You know, people like Dwayne Hagedon, um, Jim Gagan. There's so many more. I mean... There are generational people here who um, have accomplished so much. And, you know, Hubbard's in the forefront of this, but they take responsibility for communities, right? Thousands of people are helped as a result of what they've accomplished or done. They've changed directions in people's lives or the way people do things. And Hubbard, it, it, man... I just can't say enough about him. So has he been influential in my life? Massively so. Has he changed my life? Yes. Well, the people that you mentioned, too, they're, they're a force of nature. <clears throat> I mean, it's hard to describe what it is about them. But when you are around them, there's this force that makes us all better for the experience. So, so, so true. Um, what advice would you give to a 20-year-old Carl Cardinelli today? <laughs> uh, well, I would say get out there. Just do. Travel. Meet people. Have experiences. Um, take tasks on. 
um, you're, especially at 20 years old, you haven't set any course in your life, really. Right? You're, not, you're not bound by it, but expose yourself to these things and do it with enthusiasm and curiosity. You know, see what this experience is all about. Experience it. Yeah. So last one, and we, we touched on this earlier. What does the future look like for Bighorn? Well, let's talk about Bighorn. The future of Bighorn is bright. And it's bright because of the foundation that has been laid. And it's bright because of the qualities and, I don't know, almost manifesto that we all follow. And that has to do with excellence again. And it's not an intangible when it's broken down into your actions and what you try and accomplish. And here in Bighorn in particular, look, our average tenure of employee is like 11 years. But people who are in the position of exercising their discretion to make decisions have been here, have, have been nurtured, taught, mentored by Hubbard and everyone else and by their experiences and have proven themselves. You know, Bighorns, that's not going to change. Everybody is in place right now. Tony, Mike Grenier, Travis, Abel, Chef Greg Proper. All of these guys know what to do, how to do it, and they want nothing more than to perpetuate these qualities and to get better. No one of the group I just described, in fact, no one of anybody else I would describe as complacent. Everybody wants to continue and everyone wants to continue to get better. And we do. We talk about it every day. So Bighorn is going to continue to go in that direction because it's all in place right now. And I, I, for one, you know, it means a lot to me. And my time at Bighorn, I know, is measured. Um, and I feel just so good about the people who are in place at Bighorn right now in management. This place is just going to keep getting better. It's not going to be tarnished. It's going to shine bright. Well, I think that's... That's a good feeling for all of us because there is plans in place. There is a culture that exists. There is a feeling that, uh, of excellence that we all want to achieve. Th those things don't stop. And Carl, I got to tell you, I know this wasn't a situation that you were looking forward to. It's not something that you like to do about either tooting your own horn or being the center of attention. But I so appreciate your story that you've shared. And I really appreciate you doing this with me today. And I thank you very much for everything you've done for Bighorn. Oh, gosh. And I'd also like to thank Leeds and Son for their continuing support of the Bighorn Podcast.